0: May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Two texts this morning, um, one from each of our readings. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? And then from our gospel, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, on the earth distress among nations. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. Actually, our two scripture readings seem to convey very different emotions. Uh, In writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, what we think is probably the very earliest of all the writings in the New Testament paul declares delight and thanksgiving for their faith in god and he sounds full of hope in the gospel he sees god's faithful people increasing in their love for one another and for god himself they're abounding in good works and in all sorts of ways it's just the right sort of reading for this pastoral visit this confirmation because I delight to come to you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm privileged to confirm those who've responded to Jesus Christ and abound in his love in this church. We gather today in hope and expectation, just as Paul wrote to those Christians in Corinth. We thank God. And then we hear our gospel reading and it speaks of distress among the nations. You think of the very way it began in Luke 21:25 signs in the sun the moon and the stars on earth distress among the nations. We recognize it. We recognize it. It talks of the roaring of the sea and the waves. The threat of water overwhelming the people, a very real threat, of course, with rising sea levels in some parts of the world today. And yet, and yet it's no natural disaster that's predicted here. There are signs in the sun, the moon and the stars. There is fear and foreboding of what's coming upon the world. It says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, there are plenty of wars and rumours of war in our world today which um, would undermine any facile sense of security and well-being among any of us. There's something even greater predicted here. It is the coming of the Son of Man, the end times, when Luke writes, you know that the kingdom of God is near. We are told, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. And we're warned to be alert for the signs of the times, to look more deeply into our experience in the state of the world. We're told to trust in the word of life, Jesus Christ, whose words will not pass away, even though every civilization, and including ours, remember, every civilization will die. And indeed, the sun will run out of energy. We know that ours is a finite world, but God is infinite. God is infinite. Infinite love. Well, there's some sober themes for a confirmation. Um, The bishop's meant to come and cheer you up, but uh, Advent Sunday is, of course, somber and hopeful. And the two are not at variance. Our world often thinks they are. It thinks that anything that's sombre lacks hope. But our hope in Christ isn't based, praise God, upon this being the best of all possible worlds. It's based upon the promises of Christ, and they do not fail. And today, those being confirmed will make promises. Although they will know as they make them that being human beings, we often fail to live up to the promises we make. But the key part of this service, of every baptism, every confirmation, is about the promises Jesus Christ makes to us. His love for us is eternal. His saving power is assured. And that's why we thank God for each other and for him. Paul wasn't writing to those first Christians in Thessalonica, saying, what really good chaps you are. He was thanking God for what Jesus Christ was doing in them, not out of thanksgiving for their moral security or probity. And one of the noticeable things in Advent services is that there are lots of references to light, and actually, that's true for baptism and confirmation as well. Um, those being confirmed, you'll hear later in the service, are invited to walk in the light and obedience of Christ. And later, we will light the Advent wreath. Even churches not much given to candles, I notice, now have <laughs> Advent wreaths. You know, you even find them in Methodism, so no, no wonder they're at Holy Trinity. Um It's a reminder, of course, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. December, of course, in our country is a dark month. But late in this next month will come the symbol of light in the darkness of our world, the Christ child. And the birth of children always brings hope. And it's not simply the promise of a new generation. The faces of children burn with expectation. Children are very strong on promise. And that's why grown-ups often weighed down by too many worries frequently fall silent in the presence of the newborn. Have you noticed how that happens? When a newborn child is presented to an adult, the whoops of joy are often followed by a stillness, a silence. What can you say in the presence of the gift of life? But sometimes that silence, of course, is caused by a knowledge that this is a dark world into which children are born. It's a world of suffering and sorrow. And there's a darker side to human nature too. That's recognized in every baptism, every confirmation. There's lots in us to redeem. And we all have darkness within. And it's that darkness which Jesus enters. The darkness within as well as the darkness without. I don't think it's any accident that he was born at night. At night, the lonely feel more isolated, the sad feel more despondent, and with the dawning of the day often comes just a flicker of fresh hope. And for us, the light is Jesus Christ, who has called us, you and me, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We often take light for granted. It's one of the things I learned from my maternal grandmother who um, went blind from glaucoma shortly before I was born. And I remember her saying how much she missed the light. And when I was a child, I could remember her touching my face, trying to imagine what I looked like. And I think that created a bond between us which never ceased until her death, because her grandchildren were very special to her. She could not see them, but they were the light of her life. And somehow, I think as a child, I always understood why it was said of Jesus, they brought children to him so that he should touch them. They brought children to them so that he should touch them. We're very, very reluctant to touch nowadays. Yet I think I learned a great deal about love from my Christian grandmother who touched me so much. And of course, light, the light she missed, is the means by which we see everything else. That's why it's marvellous. Those who've been imprisoned in the cellars and dungeons of our world understand this only too well. It's nearly 25 years ago when I was one of his colleagues that I remember spending a couple of nights with um, Terry Waite on his release from captivity. And I recall him saying he was gradually adjusting to the blinding light of the outside world. And I looked out of the window at RAF Lynham, and it was a typically dull and cloudy November day in England, the sort we've had just the last couple of days. And what I thought was dull, he found piercing in the intensity of its brightness. And why? Because I took light for granted. Some of you will know that um, very old story about the teacher telling her class about the speed at which light travels, you know, 186,000 miles per second. It is extraordinary when you think about it. Isn't it wonderful, she said, to think of the light coming from the sun so quickly? Not really, said one child, it's downhill all the way. So, (laughs) we easily, easily take the gifts of God for granted. The gift of light illuminates everything else, though we cannot, in a sense, see light itself. It's the same with the gifts of God's grace in our lives. We often miss his presence. We frequently take him for granted. For more than uh, 40 years now, I've been uh, an associate of a small religious community in Wales, the Society of the Sacred Cross, is a community of contemplative Anglican nuns. They're one of the hidden strengths of the church. We spend most of our time ignoring them, of course, like other sisters and brothers. Like light, they're often taken for granted. And what do we take for granted? The way in which they recharge the life of the church with their prayers. We often take prayer for granted as well, the prayers of others. And someone who came to know that community well, and I knew a bit, and uh, who fell under their spell, really, was Philip Toynbee. Um, Philip's father was the great uh, historian Arnold Toynbee, and his was a family of agnostics and atheists. Indeed, his daughter, Polly Toynbee, continues the sceptical and secular tradition, and was deeply shocked by her father's late connection ...with and conversion to the Christian faith. It's amazing what nuns can do that nobody else can do. He actually moved to live near that little community in Wales... ...to try and set up some um, ecological farm. And he got in touch with them because they ran a farm, um, these dear sisters... Um, it was a fantasy. He couldn't farm at all, really, because he had been a literary editor for the Observer all his life. He didn't really know what a carrot was. And, uh, but he discovered something much more important. The light of Christ seeped into his bloodstream. And he ended up recording his spiritual pilgrimage in a daily journal, which was published in two volumes. I mean, you could read it. It finishes just a day or two before he died of cancer in 1981. That's end of a journey, and there's an earlier one called part of a journey. This discovery by this sophisticated literary man of the simplicity of Jesus Christ, the beauty of the Scriptures, the glory, the glory of the Church. And he, being the sort of person he was, wasn't content, of course, with using other people's prayers. He started writing his own. And he often concluded his prayers through Jesus Christ, our brother and bringer of light. And as he lay in his hospital bed, knowing he was going to die, it occurred to him, Jesus wasn't just a bringer of light, he was a light. And he went on to say, Jesus of Nazareth, that scarcely visible young man in history from whom light streams forward into the New Testament, into the early church, and into all later history. That little light illuminating even those of us gathered here 2,000 years after his birth. And uh, Philip Toynbee knew that perpetual winter and continuous night would be unbearable, not just physically but spiritually too. And, of course, he came to discover that the greatest source of light, of marvelous light, was Jesus Christ. The light of Christ shines into the darkest recesses of our lives. And in this baptism, in this confirmation, in the breaking of bread this morning, we see Christ's light shining here in this city of Norwich this morning. The light of Christ came clothed in the weakness of a child. Jesus, remember, needed human protection and warmth for his very survival, as did every one of you and me. We would not be here if some other human being had not cared for us when we were born. It's no surprise that the church has often used flickering candles as signs of the light of Christ. They're very easy to extinguish, but they burn with light. And a small light can lead us through the darkest places of our world. Most of us, most of us are not going to be privileged this side of eternity to see the full dazzle of divinity because the total glory of God belongs to the life of heaven. But, praise God, we have enough light to guide us. Enough light to guide us. Come, follow me, says Jesus Christ, the light. And we praise God that those being confirmed today are doing just that. So how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we feel before God because of you? Amen.